0: Worship and for the word this Wednesday night. Um, as you uh, probably know, we are continuing our study verse by verse through the Old Testament. and this is our second week in the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is, in many ways, an interesting book. We talked about this a fair bit last week, that um, Judges, I think in many ways, is one of the darkest books of the entire Bible, that we see the effect of sin and idolatry laid out in graphic detail in the book of Judges. We see just what sin leads to and what happens when people forget God and turn away from him. Um, Judges falls into place contextually as kind of the, the bridge between the exodus and the conquest of Israel and the establishment of the monarchy, of the kings, first with Saul and with David. And so Israel is in many ways in a time of transition, in this, That in Joshua, we saw the people of Israel go in and conquer the promised land. And at the close of Joshua, there were still pockets of resistance left around the countryside. Different areas where the Canaanites were still dwelling that Israel needed to go in and conquer and subdue these people and drive them out in order to have full control over the land God was giving them. But also so that they would be able to drive these people out and avoid being influenced and corrupted by their practices. Now, the Canaanites were a people who were very evil. Their worship and their idolatry was marked by some terrible things and practices that they did. And so the people of Israel had to be careful in order to avoid getting drawn in to this. And so the book of Judges kind of picks up where Joshua left off that it's telling us what happened at the close of Joshua. After Joshua died and there was no king in Israel, what happened? Did the people of Israel hold on to God? Did they continue to walk in obedience to him and see success because of that obedience? Or would they turn away from God and experience judgment and wrath because of that? And so judges, in case you haven't realized already, we see the people of Israel in many ways, turn away from God and experience the consequences of living life apart from him. And Judges has a lot of lessons that we can learn from this. Even in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of all the sin, we still see God working. We see God's ability to use anyone for his glory in Judges. That we're going to see a lot of people who are far from perfect, do great things for God and for his glory because of God's power working through them. We're going to see hope in the darkness through God's commitment to rescuing his people, uh, that God's people will over and over again fail to obey him, fail to worship him rightly, fail to walk in his ways, and God is going to continue time after time to send someone to rescue them, to give them hope, to give them peace, even though they really don't deserve it and so in many ways judges is a book of hope and that's where we get our theme for this book is rescue for wandering hearts uh, that we're going to see the sin nature that dwelled in the hearts of the people of Israel turn them away from God and we're going to see God sovereignly work to rescue them from that to rescue them from themselves and the evil that dwells inside them to bring them back to him in spite of their continued failure. And our focus point this evening, kind of where we're trying to to dial in on tonight, um, this is really in many ways kind of the focus point of the entire book, is that the primary battle for God's glory is fought within our hearts. And so we'll see God again and again be working through this in order to save these people and to bring them back to him and we see that where this all begins is in their hearts that the people of israel were struggling to follow god on an individual basis and their individual sins led to collective sins which led to oppression by their enemies and judgment and so as they continued to make these poor decisions it illustrated the fact that that it all starts at the heart, that all of these sins, all their idolatries, all the problems they face, manifested themselves in varying ways, but it all came back to where their hearts were. Were they dedicated and devoted solely to the worship of God, or were they worshiping the idols around them? Were they seeking what they desired for their own self-fulfillment, for their own glory, instead of worshiping God? And so we're going to see a lot of that here tonight. Uh, we're going to be picking up in Judges chapter 2, verse 16. And so the first part, uh, Judges 1 and 2, what we read last week, lays out kind of the situation that Israel is fighting against their people. They've had some successes and some failures as they fight against the Canaanites, the people who live in the land that God was giving to them. And we learned right at the end Of last week in Judges 2, verse 12, it says that they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And so that's the setting we're coming into the people of Israel have turned away from God. They've failed to fulfill the commands, to follow the commands that God had given them to conquer the remainder of these people. And then they begin to be corrupted by these people. And they begin to worship their gods and turn away from God, forgetting what he had done for them. And in verse in Judges 2.15, God had warned them that this would happen. It says, Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned that the people of Israel knew this was going to happen, that God had warned them over and over again in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, that if they turned away from him, that they would suffer for that, that they would experience hardship, but if they walked in obedience, they would be blessed. And so they should have seen that coming. Judges 2.15, so as the Lord had warned and the Lord had sworn to them, they struggled, and then it ends right there, it says, and they were in terrible distress. And then we see God's solution here in Judges two, sixteen. It says Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And so we see here in these, these verses God's solution to this problem. The people of Israel are continuing to sin. They're continuing to turn away from God. And they're in a bad situation because of it. And yet in the midst of that, God delivers them. God gives them a solution. Um, It says in verse 16 that the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And so what we see introduced here, this is going to be a repeated theme as we study this book, is what's known as the cycle of Judges, or the book of Judges. Uh, So you see on the slide there, so we've got kind of this circle. So it starts with unfaithfulness. So the people of Israel turn away from God, they begin worshiping the idols that the Canaanites around them were following, they begin to walk in sin, and to not follow the Lord the way he has commanded them to. So that results, the unfaithfulness, the next arrow takes us down to oppression, that God sends another people group or strengthens another people group to punish Israel, to have them experience this oppression, to remind them of what they're doing wrong and to bring them back to him. And so the people of Israel are unfaithful, they turn away from God, they're oppressed by one of the other nations around them, uh, that these people gain control over Israel, in some cases almost to the point of enslaving them, Israel cries out to God for help. So the bottom of the circle there is repentance, that they turn back to the Lord in some measure. And uh, as we see evidence here in the scriptures, usually that's not a full repentance and turning away from their sins as we would imagine. that oftentimes, they're just crying out to the Lord because of their suffering. And uh, they, in some cases, do repent of their sins and turn back to the Lord, but it's generally short-lived. And so they cry out to God, and God sends someone to deliver them, that he raises up a judge or a leader to fight for the people, to lead them, and to deliver them from the hands of whoever it was that was oppressing them, In judgment at that time. And so the people of Israel experience the deliverance given by that judge and for some time things will go well and then a generation or two or three later they turn from God, they begin worshiping these false gods again and go back to unfaithfulness and start the cycle all over again. And so we see that cycle repeated several times as we go through the book of Judges um, that Israel is unfaithful to the Lord, they're oppressed, they suffer, they cry out to God, God sends a leader to deliver them, and then they're unfaithful again and start the cycle over and over. And it's interesting as we look at this, we may be thinking, wow, these people do not get this. It seems so simple. God has told you, do this and things will go well. Do this, and they won't go well. That he reminded them over and over of that. They've experienced that now firsthand. And yet they continue to turn away from the Lord, to forget what he has done, to forget the consequences of sin and the blessing of obedience. And they continue to just go through this cycle over and over again. But really, I think this is a great reminder of the human condition of the sin nature that dwells within us, that we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, that we've been given a new heart, but we still have that sin nature dwelling within us that draws us away from God, that makes temptation so powerful within our lives, um, that the temptation to sin has the potential to lead each of us astray. And so it's important as we read through this to remember that we are not that different from the people of Israel. Um, that is only by the grace of God and by only, only by holding fast to him that we can avoid getting caught up in a cycle of sin and suffering that comes with that. And it looks different for us today than it did for the people of Israel um, in most ways. But that doesn't mean that it's not harmful, that it's not dangerous, that it does not have the potential to do damage to us and to our relationship with God. And so we have to be careful as we go through life and as we read through this to just remember these important lessons that sin is dangerous and that we must continue walking in obedience to the Lord. And I think uh, a great illustration for this. Um, so I, a uh, little bit about myself, I'm fairly boring. I enjoy watching adventure documentaries Um, So, you know, you see the the stories about, you know, somebody climbing a mountain that's, you know, on a way that's never been climbed or riding their bicycles across Asia or something crazy like that. So I enjoy watching stuff like this, which my wife always finds a little concerning that I might get ideas, but so far I haven't taken anything too crazy from it. But I've noticed a lot of the time in these documentaries, the people they're centered around are usually not in a healthy place emotionally, spiritually, whatever it may be, Um, that a lot of these people, especially the ones who are doing things like this professionally, that are getting paid by the companies that make the bikes or the climbing gear or whatever, that these people a lot of the time have a life that is centered completely around this activity that they like, that this has become their identity and their purpose in life. And they're willing to take extraordinary risks to maintain that because That's really all that they have. And a common theme I've noticed amongst these people is a lot of the time they're leaving behind them a trail of broken relationships and of things that they've left undone in other areas of life. Uh, That this activity they're seeking after has become so all-consuming that they're willing to throw aside the people that they love and care, the people that love and care for them in order to continue this quest to do the greatest next thing or the biggest next thing. And it's never as fulfilling as they hope it should be. But it's interesting in watching these, I don't think any of these people set out with the intention that I'm going to let this thing consume my life, I'm going to hurt the people that love me, and I'm going to make this my God. I don't think any of them started out that way, that it was step by step bit by bit, that they started to find their identity more and more in this activity. They started sending more and more of their time in it, and it became more and more demanding upon them as time went on. And eventually, the tables turned to where it was something that they liked, to where it became what they were. And I think sin Works much the same way for us. Um, that there is that danger of getting caught up in worship of something that is not our Lord. There are many things in the world that are not inherently good or bad, but we can make them good or bad by how we view them and what we do with them. So anytime we find ourselves loving something, some possession, some activity, more than we love our Lord that's when that red flag should go up and we should take a step back and think about where our hearts are are we beginning to get caught up in something that has the potential to distract us from our relationship with God and from the work he set before us in an unhealthy way and I think that's what happened with the people of Israel here that they were In the midst of the Canaanites, they were surrounded by these other people. They were forced to engage with them at some level. And then they gradually grew to adopt their practices. They became desensitized to the sin around them. And that sin grew and began to cause problems. Uh, We see in these verses we read here a few distinct things about the time of the judges and the judges. So verse 16 tells us that the Lord raised up judges who saved them. That God raised up these people. And a lot of these judges we see are, again, not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. But God used them and they accomplished things through the power of God. In verse 18, we're told that the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning of Israel. That God saw the people of Israel. He saw their suffering, which was justly deserved that they were suffering the punishment for the actions they had chosen to do knowing that that was not what they were supposed to do but God still had pity on them. God still showed them mercy that they were completely undeserving of this but God was still faithful to them when Israel was anything but faithful to God. In verse 20 it tells us that these idolatrous practices, the stubborn sinfulness of the people of Israel, it says that it kindled the anger of the Lord against them. I think it's easy for us to shrug off sin, to kind of push it aside, to downplay the importance it has. That sin is a big deal. That God has a righteous hatred for sin, and sin brings consequences. It may not be immediate, it may not be as disastrous as some of the things we see here, but sin always has consequences. And so we have to be watchful for it, to root it out of our lives, and to do our best to walk in obedience to God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses." So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And so this is again illustrating the situation here. What is going on with the people of Israel at this time? That they were living amongst Israel the Canaanites. They had failed to follow God's commands, to drive out the rest of the Canaanites and to get rid of those people groups. And so because of that, they were forced to live among them. By doing that, they began to adopt more and more of their practices. Uh, So the beginning of this chapter, as well as the end of chapter two, talks about how God used this as a test for the people of Israel. Uh, in some ways, this was a test of their own choosing, that they had chosen to sin. They were experiencing the consequences of that sin. And so God put them in a situation where they would continue to deal with those consequences and be tested whether or not they would turn back to him and walk in obedience to him. And so in this case, the people of Israel did not do so well. The chapter three, verse six or verse 5 tells us that the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, etc. Verse 6, their daughters they took to themselves for wives, their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. That it's almost like they have a list, that they're looking back, you know, flipping back through their Bibles, back to Deuteronomy, going, okay, what was it we weren't supposed to do? Yeah, let's do that. They were not supposed to live amongst These people, they were not supposed to intermarry with them because God knew that these things would lead to idolatry, that eventually they would begin to adopt the worship practices of these people and all the sin that came along with that. And so they chose to do this and they began to suffer for it. Chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Resheathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Resheathim, so the land had rest forty years." Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And so, what we see here is the first judge. That everything we've been reading up to this point is kind of laying out the background, the situation, and what to expect as we go forward, um, introducing that cycle, the sins that Israel would walk in. And so, here we see the first recorded instance of what happened here. Uh, You may remember the name Othniel, that he appeared a while back in the book of Joshua, um, that he was one of the men who went into the hill country to conquer and fight against the Canaanites and to help them settle in to that land and to live the life that God had called them to. That Othniel was someone who had a strong heritage, that he had been known for fighting against God's enemies, for being a righteous man. And again, we see here what led to all of this. Verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's so important for us to remember as we're living in a world that more and more is turning its back on its creator. That right and wrong, that good and evil are defined by our God. That what is evil in the sight of the Lord is truly evil, and what God says is good is good, that those are strongly and absolutely defined. And when we turn away from God by doing what He defines as wrong, that there are consequences. So we have to remember the consequences of doing what is wrong before God, that it doesn't matter what man says is right or wrong, what does God say is right? or wrong so they do what's evil in the sight of the lord they forget the lord and serve these false gods verse 8 the anger of the lord was kindled against israel as we saw just a few verses back and he sold them into the hand of kushan rishathaim king of mesopotamia and so the people of israel turn away from god god gives them over to oppression by this foreign king it says they served him eight years And then in verse 9, we see the cycle continue. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. And as we read through the book of Judges, I think we should keep an eye on that concept of a deliverer, that God is sending a deliverer to help his people, that he will defeat their enemies, he will give them freedom, he will bring them back to righteous worship of their God. The deliverance that these judges bring is short-lived, and it is temporary. And as we continue to read through this, we see that the people of Israel will continue to need a deliverer, but they need a greater deliverer. They need the ultimate deliverer. We need the ultimate deliverer. That just as the people of Israel needed someone to defeat their enemies, to rescue them from the hardship and the consequences of sin, we also need someone to defeat our enemies, to rescue us from ourselves, from the sin that separates us from God, that makes us choose the wrong things, the sin that drives us away from God and in the end would bring us to utter destruction. And so the judges, in many ways, are little pictures pointing forward to that ultimate deliverer that is to come, the one who would defeat sin and death, who would bring freedom, not just from enemies on the outside, but from the enemy within, that would free us from that permanently and eternally and bring us back into right relationship with our creator. Another interesting thing to note as we look at Othniel that we don't really see anything too bad about this guy. Uh, That verse 10 tells us the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel that he defeated their enemies and gave the land rest for 40 years. Uh, that Othniel sounds like he was a pretty great guy, that he was faithful to the Lord, that he led his people, and that God used him through the guidance of his spirit. As we continue to read through the book of Judges, we're going to see kind of a gradual degradation of each judge. That Othniel sounds like a pretty righteous guy um, as we get through The next few, they seem a little shadier, and by the end of the book, the judges that we're reading about don't really seem like someone that could hardly be used by God. These are people with some very serious character flaws, with grave sins in their lives, that God continued to use them, but we see through the book of Judges that cycle continuing to spiral downward that Israel continued to become more and more depraved and farther and farther from the life that God had called them to because of their sin and their unwillingness to repent. So watch for that as we continue to read here. So Othniel brought the land rest for 40 years and then he died. And we pick up again in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Same thing again. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot that they had been delivered. They forgot the lessons They'd been taught. They forgot the God who had saved them and the God that they served. They did what was evil. So God again sends another foreign king, Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel to punish them for what they'd done, to remind them of the hardship that comes when they turn away from God. Verse 14, the people of Israel served him 18 years. And we see the next step in verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Wow. Again, not the type of stuff we usually expect to see when we flip open the Bible. And so Ehud is kind of an interesting character here. We see Othniel, you know, not a lot we can question about this guy. Ehud, it's harder to say. You know, he was fighting for God's people, that God raised him up, that God's spirit was working through him. Was God redeeming these actions for a good purpose, or is this what God had commanded him to do? It's hard to say. But we do know that God was sovereignly working through this situation to save his people. Another thing about Ehud, uh, the, the wording here in the original he- Hebrew where it says in verse 15 that he was a left-handed man. The actual literal translation of that would be that he didn't use his right hand or his right hand wasn't very good. And so it may not have been so much that this guy was left-handed, but that he may have had some sort of disability or something wrong with his right arm, that it wasn't very useful to him. It could have been crippled in some way. And so this is a man who had some sort of oddity about him, maybe some sort of physical disability, but God was still using this man to do his will. So we'll pick up again in verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years." So God is working through this man, Ehid, to deliver his people. Uh, that Ehid was a man who saw the oppression, he saw the suffering that was being brought upon his people, and he took action, that he followed God and trusted him. Uh, interesting note in verse 28. So he flees away, he kills this king that's oppressing their people, escapes back to his homeland, gets back to Israel, and then he sounds a trumpet and rallies the people of Israel to fight against these oppressors, to fight against the Moabites. In verse 28, he tells them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. I think the wording there is so key. He says, you know, follow after me, not because I have killed their king, not because... I am a great leader because I am a strong man, not because I am the right guy. Follow me because the Lord has given your enemies into your hand. That in this situation, he knew that the power came from God. And that is what the people needed to hear, that God was going to give them victory as he had time and time again when they followed him. And really, I think that's the most important characteristic for a leader. Is we want to follow the leader that is following God. Uh, we think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, that we would imitate him as he imitates Christ. That we want to be seeking Those who are living godly lives, who are seeking the Lord with all their hearts, who are serving him with their lives, and who are worshiping him with all they have. And these are the kind of people we want to follow. Not the ones who are the most charismatic, not the ones who are the brightest. We want to be following the ones who are seeking God, who are wanting to see God work and who will lead people into that to help people see victory through the power of our Lord. In verse 30, it says that Moab was subdued under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And this concept of rest appears throughout the scriptures. and I think this is a great reminder that the people only truly had rest when it was given by God when they were walking in obedience to God, that they could not attain it on their own, they could not find it by seeking it in the world around them, that they could only get rest when it was given by God. And that's a great reminder for us today, that we only truly have rest when we are abiding in our Lord, that we are looking forward to that eternal, lasting full rest that God will give us when we go to be with him forever. That that rest is what we have to look forward to. That's, again, just a picture, a reminder of what God is pointing us forward to. Verse 31 introduces another judge for us. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. So this guy's story is a lot shorter. Not a lot said here. Uh, So Shamgar, we're told, was known as the son of Anath. So Anath was some sort of Canaanite name, at times even associated with one of their deities. And so we're not sure if this was like a nickname given to him, if that was the name of one of his parents, if this man was not actually an Israelite. Um, Or if they just called him the son of Anath because that was the Canaanite god of war and he was a warlike man, that he was a warrior. We're not really sure. We don't know what his family was like, what his upbringing was like, what his heritage was like. But we do know that God used this man. Uh, We're told that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Uh, So an ox goad, I imagine most of us probably are not familiar with this term. It's not something we use in our day-to-day lives often. Uh, So an ox goad was a tool used for farm work uh, with a yoke of oxen. Uh, This was basically a stick up to eight feet long. It was pointed on one end um, so you could smack or poke your ox and keep it going. And the other end had some sort of shovel or hoe type attachment on it for scraping any dirt that would get caked on your plow. So this was a farming implement that had the potential to be used as a weapon. Uh, So whether this was by choice or because there were no actual weapons available to him, we're not sure. But Shamgar, this guy who may or may not have been an Israelite, was used by God that he killed 600 Philistines. And then it says right at the end there, and he also saved Israel. And so God, in the cases of both these men, used them to accomplish great things. Uh, That Ehud was someone who was, you know, at least different from average, if not having some sort of problem with the use of one of his arms. That Shamgar was someone with a questionable background and family history. But God still chose to use these people to do great things. That Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, that when I am weak, then I am very strong. That God often chooses our weaknesses to make his power shine through all the more. And we're reminded as we read these passages that God can and often does use the unlikely people to do amazing things. And we have to remember as we go through life that we should not let our shortcomings stop us from serving God. That some of us, all of us, have some sort of weakness. That many of us have questions about our past or things that we feel we are not gifted to do, strengths that we do not possess, abilities that others have better than us. But that's all the better in the eyes of God because when he works through us, we cannot take any of the credit, that God is faithful to do what he will through those who are willing to submit to him and follow his lead in their lives, regardless of whether or not they would be the best choice for that position in the eyes of the world, that this is the God who continually uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the God who turns the world upside down with a small, obscure people group. That changed the course of history with a group of young blue collar workers recruited from their work that were untrained in any official capacity. That this is what God does. And so, none of us should feel like we don't have something to bring to God. That all we have to bring to God is a willing heart submitted to Him and the willingness to continue walking in obedience and following His lead wherever. He may take us. So as we wrap this up tonight, brings us back to that focus point we had at the beginning. That God, or excuse me, the primary battle for God's glory is fought within our hearts. That we'll see the people of Israel as we continue our study through Judges over and over again, turn away from God. That their hearts desired something more than God. That they thought that they could achieve success or wealth or happiness apart from God. And when their hearts begin to worship these other things, that that leads them into that cycle of sin, of oppression, of difficulty. And that God will continually deliver them from that. But that first step that led them to that is that battle that happens within each and every one of us. That day by day we have to choose to follow God, to obey God, and to worship God. That there's various things pulling us all different directions. That um, any given day we'll be faced with different opportunities to worship God, to obey God, to walk in his ways. Or opportunities to look for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for purpose in something apart from God to commit idolatry, to allow our hearts to turn away from him. And so we have to continue to walk in obedience to him day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, trusting him to be faithful to us and to work through our shortcomings. And our closing verse tonight, I usually pick one out of the New Testament, but this one just seemed so fitting for tonight. Proverbs 4.23 tells us keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. And that's in many ways what we learn through the book of Judges that if we keep our hearts, if we watch over them, if we make sure that they're set apart in holiness for the sole worship of our God, that our springs of life will flow out of us, that we will have that abundant life promised to us by Jesus, and that we Not necessarily we'll have everything go exactly the way we wanted it to, but whatever comes our way, we'll be prepared for it, knowing that God is with us and that we are walking in obedience to him. Keep watch over your heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for your loving kindness, God. Thank you for the message you've given us, that you are a God who is faithful even to unfaithful people lord i thank you uh, that we saw here in judges that you have mercy on people who do not deserve it lord And i thank you for that i thank you that you have shown your mercy to us lord that you have made a way for us to be right before you to walk in holiness before you because of the sacrifice of your son i pray that you would be with us as we go from here lord that you would watch over us protect us i pray that you would help us to guard our hearts to be watchful for the things that draw us away from you, that distract us from you, that lead us into sin and temptation. I pray that you would help us to identify those things, to be quick to push those things out of our lives, Lord, and to seek you in worship. I pray that you would be with us in these things, Lord, that you might be glory.